This Week in HPC by Intersect 360 Research. Frontera debuts at TAC plus DARPA, PAPA, and Hello Nanotubes. It's This Week in HPC. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of This Week in HPC with Intersect 360 Research, distributed in partnership with HPC Wire. I'm Addison Snell, and I'm joined again by Tiffany Trader. And Tiffany, our biggest news this week in HPC is the official debut of the Frontera supercomputer at the Texas Advanced Computing Center at uh, University of Texas at Austin. That's right. So TAC, the Texas, Texas Advanced Computing Center at the University of Texas in Austin, they, they just had their official launch party on Tuesday for their Frontera supercomputer. And it's now a full, full production status. It passed its, accept, its acceptance last week. So this was the system that was first announced last June. It's the NSF leadership system, which they used to call the track one, track one system. Now it's a leadership system. That's the, the, the lingo now. Um, so this was a contract uh, worth a 60 million for the system and another 60 million for operating costs over the expected, you know, five year uh, or so um, timeframe. And of course, Frontera is essentially the follow on to the Blue Waters system that was at NCSA uh, or still is uh, at the National Center for Supercomputing Applications, uh, the University of Illinois, um, which uh, also, by the way, um, competed for the award. Uh, and just a note about the name, the, the Frontera name. Um, and originally, it was actually, I believe it was supposed to be called Frontier, and the, the official award uh, program name for this, this NSF award is comp Computation for the Endless Frontier, but it was um, the time frame was around the same time as the Frontier system at Oak Ridge, and apparently they got their name onto you know, the government um, into the government documents and the funding documents first. So, so now it's the TAC machine is called Frontera, which means frontier or border in Spanish. Yeah, this is now the largest academic supercomputer in the world uh, in terms of being open access and academic funded through NSF. It's the number five supercomputer in the world. It also debuts HDR InfiniBand. Uh, and it's a big win for Intel to have these Intel processors. Now, there are a few subsystems that are GPU accelerated, but really Intel is providing the dominant computational horsepower. And this is put together by Dell. So it's a huge top 10 win for Dell and the HPC side as well. Yeah, I think you pointed out before, isn't this one of the biggest wins we've seen for Dell? It is. Well, I mean, definitively is a, yeah, is a number yeah. five up there. So it's, I think, Dell's biggest current installation in HPC. But it's not just the fact that it's a large supercomputer. They are pushing some of the firsts along with this, uh, including that HDR InfiniBand. And there's some notable storage with this as well. Yeah, so Dell, uh, 8,000 nodes, 8,008 to be exact, with the top bin SPZON platinum nodes. That's the 28-core the 28 core part. It's the highest bin Xeon that you can get without getting into the multi-chip module AP9000 line, which is goes up to 56 cores. Um, and... Uh, it's impressive. Impressive. It's got the HDR, like you said. It's got the data data direct networks to supply the main storage, 50 plus petabytes disk, three petabytes of flash, 1.5 terabytes a second of I/O, and it also has uh, direct liquid cooling from Cool IT, uh, which um, I talked to Dan Stanzioni, the center director at TAC, um, about this, and uh, it's he, he told me it's enabling about twice as many racks. 
in the same print, uh, thanks to, due to the direct cooling as some of their previous systems, like the recently retired Stampede 1 machine. And out of all of those stats, I think the one that makes me raise my eyebrows the most is the 1.5 terabytes a second of I.O. in and out. And I was making a point with regard to a different system. Because it's I.O. and it's on the chip, we tend to measure it in bytes. And networking speeds you tend to think of in bits. But if you converted those bytes to bits, you're now, you know, 1.5 terabytes, you're up to over a petabit of, uh, of, of IO capacity. So if you think about it in terms of networking speeds, it gets to be quite a bit. So to speak. Yeah. Um, um, right. So yeah, good, good point. Um, and then we, you were mentioning the subsystem. So we also learned more about these two frontier subsystems that were also funded and were recently deployed. They were just, just deployed in August. They're both GPU subsystems. So, so they have this big, large, you know, massive, um, x86 machine, this, this Intel machine. It's actually, you said it's number five, but it's, it's number five with a 23 and a half Limpack petaflops. Um, so to kind of balance and provide uh, the different machines for different workloads, they're also launching these two subsystems, GPU subsystems that will target artificial intelligence and machine learning and molecular dynamics. So they'll be able to support all that research as well. Uh, one of these is a cluster uh, made up of 360 NVIDIA Quadro RTX 5000 GPUs. Um, so like single precision optimized oriented and those are uh, come submerged in liquid liquid cooled tanks uh, from GRC formerly known as green revolution green revolution cooling they go by GRC now and that one uses uh, Mellanox HDR networking and will provide four petaflops of peak single precision performance uh, as you can imagine the single precision optimized machine will be um, will be a good um, good fit for molecular dynamics work, workloads. Uh, and then the um, the second subsystem that they're deploying, I think we we'd heard a little bit about, about it before. We got we got some more details now, and I, I I think they might they might actually benchmark this one for the uh, for the next list. So um, something to to look for there. But this one's going to be an IBM Power Nine system. So think like Summit and Sierra, a um, little bit more like the Sierra Sierra one because it's got the four four to one GPU to CPU configuration. But it's going to be made with 448 V100 GPUs offering um, a peak uh, double precision output of 3.5 uh, petaflops. So um, somewhere, I don't know where that is, like bottom third of the list, maybe we'll, we'll see on, on the next list. Um, and then the uh, this one is uh, EDR connected, and it, it revives the Longhorn, the Longhorn system name at TAC. Uh, the original Longhorn was uh, also a GPU cluster uh, that was decommissioned in, in 2014. Uh, and then there's also a cloud component, which I think is kind of interesting. The big three cloud vendor vendors were all explicitly funded under this award. So Amazon, Google, and Microsoft will also be also used. So, so they have the big x86 system. They have like the two GPU systems, one of them single precision oriented, and then they have the clouds um, to provide uh, other types of emerging technologies like TPUs and FPGAs, and also to provide long-term storage. And, and back at uh, the Rice Oil and Gas Conference, which which you and I were both attended, um, 
we, we saw Dan speak there. Um, I remember, you probably remember too, he was talking about, you know, the fact that cloud versus HPC, that it's not this either or decision. You know, we kind of already proved, I think like 10 years ago with the Magellan report that, you know, we have highly utilized machine on-prem makes sense for, for traditional HPC, uh, but cloud and HPC don't necessarily do the thing, the same thing. So they're bringing in cloud to do the things that cloud does well. So like publishing the archive data and then access to um, things cloud does well, composable workflows, natural language pro processing, and, and then the latest, you know, the latest gear, which increasingly the clouds are, are getting the latest gear first. You know, Tiffany, you pointed out in your article on HPC Wire that it's not only accepted, it's already up and running, the Frontera system attack. And in particular, one uh, comment that uh, caught my, my eye was uh, Dan Stanzione attack talking about how with it being a different architecture than we see with Summit and Sierra, there are going to be certain types of workloads where he expects that they're going to have world's best performance on this academic supercomputer relative to some that we're seeing in at the DOE. And they're already up and running on things like uh, hurricane simulations just in time for hurricane season. So he was saying that so for some of these uh, workloads like um, adaptive mesh and partial differential equations, that he thinks, like you just said, that they could they could actually take on machines like Summit and Sierra, um, because those you know those those workloads aren't aren't very well optimized for the GPUs. And essentially, if you um, you know if you took the way, took away the GPUs on a machine like Summit, you you have a 3,000 node you know CPU machine, and they have an 8,000 node one. So you know when you look at it like that, you can you can see his point there. So the other thing that was interesting, as you pointed out, is that this acceptance and launch lines up with the start of the hurricane season uh, and and actually, you know, Dorian was coming on, um, gaining gaining a force over the Atlantic, uh, and TAC was able to. They actually so 20% of their cycles are are discretionary, and they're able to grant this discretionary time for these uh, emergency seasonal type workloads. So they were able to grant grant that time to some researchers, a uh, research team out of UT and the University of North Carolina, who were using Stampede and Frontera for storm surge modeling. Uh, for for the for the Hurricane Dorian and to also prove and be able to show that their code works and and everything works on Frontera and um, Dan Stanzioni relayed that it it um, went off really went really well in terms of getting onto Frontera that they were able to get up and running in right around like just like under ten minutes and that they even saw a very impressive doubling in performance over Stampede Two uh, I think he means the um, the Skylake nodes, but it also does have five nodes too, so I'm not sure exactly there. But like they were able to see a doubling in performance. Um, now a lot of that he you know he acknowledged right up front that a lot of that is owing to the fact that the system was unusually quiet, so no contention for I/O and other resources. But generally, he said that the the Cascade, the Cascade Lake machine, the Frontera machine, it's hitting its performance targets, and it's getting about uh, about 10, 15 percent improvements over over Skylake. And up to 30% in the case where the codes aren't aren't memory bandwidth bound, um, you know. And there's like a lot. There's actually like a this is a really there's a lot of moving parts in this project, as you can see. I mean, like there's more that we could talk about. I know we want to move on to some other things, but there's also Optane nodes, um, comparisons to uh, the DOE project and why they went with the straight straight x86 for the primary system instead of the fat node GPU approach. So, um, you know, I guess I would refer our readers to the article to to read more about those things because that's pretty cool. 
And congratulations to TAC on the debut of an impressive supercomputer. But you're right, Tiffany, we do have, a, in fact, two other stories we want to at least do a quick hit on because they're both interesting, starting with something out of the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, out of the Department of Defense. They have a new project called PAPA for Performant Automation of Parallel Program Assembly, which is aiming at new investment for more parallel computing technologies for multi-core and heterogeneous environments in HPC. Right. So this is a counterstrike to Amdahl's law, which we've lost, and Moore's law, which we're losing. And it's seeking to uh, provide greater performance, hardware performance with, with less coding. Um, the, the official said that they would explore coding here, uh, trade-offs between programming productivity, solution generality, and scalability to enable scientists and domain experts with no understanding of parallel programming and hardware architectures to create highly efficient performance portable programs. Um, so if that doesn't sound uh, you know, aspirational enough, uh, another goal of the, pro the, one of the main goals of the, the project is to, to create new compiler technology uh, to provide up to a 10,000 fold improvement in uh, programming productivity for massively parallel systems. So this sounds kind of like, you know, this holy grail of, of some kind of auto parallelization. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think that it does sound like that. It sounds heavily aspirational. And I've got a lot of thoughts about it that were kind of a mixed bag. But as I read about it, it's mostly to the positive. I think this is an extreme problem in high-performance computing, and it's one that's been a long time coming. One of the first articles I wrote way back when we started Intersect 360 Research as Tabor Research, when it was a division of Tabor Communications and a sister to HPC Wire, uh, was this notion of parallelism on the multi-core side that was taking application performance farther and farther away and the divide between de uh, peak performance and actual delivered performance. And that notion of parallelism is front and center in that. And the more you go to multiple cores on a single socket or especially if you add in heterogeneous elements like coprocessors or accelerators of any type, you shift the burden of scalability from the, the computer architecture itself and the hardware environment past the operating system and now out onto the application programmer to carry that burden of parallelism uh, and, and to put it into the application. And it doesn't always work particularly well, particularly if someone is a scientist and not a computer scientist, which is our old refrain in this industry. So I do think it's something that's well past the point where it needs a massive undertaking. It is the kind of project that passes my whiff test of, do we want government involvement here? Would the free market do it on its own? And I, I think we've already got the answer to that question, that the free market isn't going to do this, that this is essentially a computing infrastructure type of prog uh, project where where we can really use the, the government intervention. My only real reservation has been, you know, looking at what's the, the roadmap of, of previous success of projects like this out of DARPA, particularly when they're so aspirational. This is no guarantee of success for something that uh, that's so pie in the sky. Uh, but, uh, you know, I don't mean to be cynical about it either. I, I'm at least in favor of this enough that I think this is a really good idea. And, and I'm looking forward to seeing what, uh, what Papa can produce just with the caveat that as an analyst, I'm going to write down what they say the program is about now. And in a couple of years, I'm going to come back and see, did it actually do any of it? 
Yeah, definitely. We should let's 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 put that on our calendars now. Uh, you know, DARPA's known they're known high risk, high reward. That's that's that that's one of their their goals and their missions is to is to fund these high risk reward uh, programs. And and this certainly could be enormously transformative for for the HPC space. And and two of the areas that they're they're targeting to have that transformation transformative effect on are uh, the physical simulation space and then real time processing. With on the, the physical simulation side, there um, that would include data-driven applications such as fluid dynamics and weather forecasting and particle physics. And you can see why those applications uh, would be important to DARPA. And then especially in the, in the latter case, the real-time processing, um, the edge computing applications, radar, wireless communication systems, you know, maybe maybe drones. Um, you, know, you can see the, the ties there to the uh, defense and military space as well. The other quick hit we're going to pick up this week in HPC, we've been talking about alternate technologies to even alternates to silicon or FinFET. And one of the things that's come up before has been carbon nanotubes. I remember we talked about it with regard to the possibilities of NRAM after hot chips last year. And now this week in HPC, we've got an actual demonstration of a transistor built from carbon nanotubes that they've built up and run their version of Hello World. Yeah, so this is a, a research project out of MIT, and it actually um, there, there's a there's a thread here because it's actually uh, got some DARPA funding as well. So they they've uh, they've made a, a big advance here in um, designing this uh, carbon nanotube nanotube field effect transistor, the CNFET, um, and for a long time now this has been difficult to do because there are, there are defects um portions of the tube uh can interfere with 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 the switching uh, performance so um they've made this advance and they they've overcome some of that with the, the, with this this what they're calling this breakthrough with the dream technique uh dream is an acronym standing for designing resiliency against metallic metallic cnts dream and that positions the metallic cn fets in a in a manner where they're they're not disruptive to the transistor um and they can uh, they can hit their um, their purity requirement. So uh, you know it's a it's a big advance here, and they've they've been able to demonstrate this in a 16-bit microprocessor with more than 1,400 I'm oh, sorry 14,000 of these CN FETs, and uh, were able to successfully perform the iconic uh, Hello World um, uh, program, um, and. Uh, and 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 the processor itself is is based on the risk 5 open source chip architecture which we we continue to to see and and hear more about uh, and it builds on a previous previous version uh, designed uh, about 6 years ago and that iteration only had 178 of these cn fets and this one has 14000 so big big leap there to me, I'm actually really excited about this. I mean, to be clear, this is nowhere near ready for actual prime time. This is a research project. They've done one nifty trick. But for all we've talked about quantum computing and the different races there in terms of the development of quantum processors and the race to quantum supremacy and the like, I actually have more faith in the medium term in something like carbon nanotubes than, than wide-scale deployment of quantum, I think, is potentially farther away. Than, than carbon nanotubes are. I think neither one of those available next year at a store near you. But to me, I'm, I'm really glad to see uh, this kind of a project coming out. And a again, a great example of, of DARPA funding 
that's uh, extending capabilities in HPC? One of the uh, the lead researchers and co-author on on the paper that that was that was published, uh, Max M. Schulicher, he said, uh, "We think it's no longer a question of if these car- commercially available carbon nanotube processors, but when." So they uh, they are believers in their projects. Our listeners can go to HPC Wire and get more details on all of these stories. Tiffany, thanks for wrapping up the news for us this week in HPC, and thanks to you for tuning in. You've been listening to This Week in HPC, brought to you by Intersect 360 Research, actionable market intelligence for high-performance computing. For more information, visit intersect360.com. 